Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if it didn't hurt so much, it would be funny, he thought. Lately, it seemed like he couldn't go to bed without a good beating. And he couldn't lay his head on a nice, clean pillow with Egyptian cotton sheets lying on a warm straw mat. Instead, the Apostle Paul found himself lying in the corner of a dark, dank prison cell, trying to keep warm on the hard stone floor. With a shiver, he pulled his old tattered overcoat up over his face. But sleep would elude him this night. So he prayed. He prayed for the churches he had established. Faces of his friends passed through his mind. And as they did, he said a prayer for each. By name. Finally, As it often does during our prayers, sleep came. The next morning, Paul received a visitor. It was Epaphroditus, or E. Diddy, as they called him back home in Philippi. He was an emerging hip-hop mogul. E. Diddy was there with the gift for Paul from the Christians in Philippi. A brand new overcoat. Even here in prison, God was proving himself faithful to Paul. After a good long visit with E. Diddy, hearing about all of his new artists and all of the goings and comings and happenings in Philippi, Paul set about writing a thank you. A thank you note to the church in Philippi. And he felt particularly inspired today. He started feverishly writing, and as he wrote to them, he wrote about his circumstances. He wrote about his plans for when he was released, and and then he also dealt with an issue that E. Diddy had told him about that was dividing a couple of folks in the church, but filled with joy at the end of his thank you note. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, Rejoice. A smirk came over his face as he wrote those words. Ironically, he meant it. In spite of his circumstances, of sleepless nights in a cold, hard prison, feeling hungry and lonely. In those circumstances, Paul rejoiced. Paul continued writing his thank you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. 
if we're all honest, we would say that Paul has learned a powerful secret to be content in all circumstances. What an amazing ability, a superpower. I mean, if there was one thing, moms, that you would give your kids, contentment? Think of the car rides in silence, in bliss. Think of the, mom, it's okay if dinner's not quite ready yet. Mom, it's okay. Why don't you just go take a bath and take a load off? We're content just to sit here and wait for you. Superpower. Supernatural power. Contentment in all circumstances. And Paul has learned a powerful thing. And he is putting into practice a particularly challenging part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. See, we've been walking through Matthew a little bit. And the last few weeks we've been in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus walks up a well, from Colorado's perspective, a hillside. It overlooks the Sea of Galilee, and he's up on this hill, and the, he calls his disciples to him. And that's important to remember because he's speaking to disciples. He's speaking to people who have decided to follow him. Now, I'm sure, just like on, at church on Sundays, there are a handful of folks that are there that aren't disciples yet. But these are words that Jesus means for the disciples to hear. It is something he wants them to realize about themselves. It's instructions for them, not for the non-disciple. And today we're going to be in chapter 6 of Matthew. Chapter 6 of Matthew, we're going to start in verse 19. So we've been jumping around a little bit. We're not doing the whole entire sermon because, like I said, there's one pastor who did 99 sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not him. Aren't you happy? Chapter 6, verse 19, we read this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, it's interesting. Jesus starts out this part of the sermon. This is right after the Lord's Prayer. And I'm not going to go through the Lord's Prayer because we did a series a while back. You can listen to it on the podcast about the Lord's Prayer. And scholars have tried to figure out, okay, what's he doing here? How does he go from teach us to pray to store up your treasure in heaven? And some feel like there's this huge disconnect. There's this disjointedness here. And perhaps what Matthew's done is he's kind of strung together a bunch of different sermons of Jesus and edited them for us and put them here. But I think there's a common theme behind the Lord's Prayer and what Jesus starts to talk about here. He says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You could also say, treasured be your name. And I think this is a logical extension from the Lord's Prayer in Jesus' mind. Because you also, in the Lord's Prayer, ask 
for your daily bread. You ask for provision. In this section that Jesus is going to talk about here, he's talking about the Lord's provision in our lives. He's talking about the sovereignty of God in our lives. He's talking about, he's asking us in a sense, who is your God? And one of the things that sometimes can be our God has an ancient name. Some translations might have it in some of these verses coming. The ancient name is mammon, money. Jesus continues and he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus is asking us, do you see things in a healthy way? Are your eyes healthy? Do you see your earthly possessions and their relationship to you in a healthy way with your relationship with God? Some of us like shows like, uh, what's that one about hoarders? Is it called hoarders? Some of us are amazed. Some of you go, oh, that's my house. But some of us are amazed. Some of you go, oh, that's my wife. Don't say that now. You'll get in trouble. Some of us are amazed with the stuff people will hold on to. When I was in Denver, I was working, it was actually before Marnie and I were married, and I, in seminary, would often uh, house sit for people um, who would go out of town for extended periods of time. I worked at uh, Cherry Hills Community Church, and so we knew some pretty well-off people, and I would get to stay at their house, and they, they paid really well. Um, to stay, sleep at their home. One particular couple, his wife was a hoarder. These folks had a property right on the golf course of Cherry Hills Country Club. You would have never have thought that a hoarder lived on Cherry Hills Country Club, but there was one. And I remember you would walk into the home and it just always felt filthy. It, it just felt unkept. Part of that was because there was, there was always dirty dishes and pans and uh, cooking things all over the kitchen. Uh, but there was trails through the house, through the stuff that you had to walk on to get to where you were going. A multi-million dollar home filled with junk. It was astonishing to me. And it was such a good parable that the Lord gave me when I was a young man because it helped me see, am I going to store up treasures on earth? Or am I going to store up treasures in heaven? Now, we need to be clear here. Jesus is not anti-stuff. Jesus is not saying, so therefore become a monk or a nun, sell all you have, take a vow of poverty, and live off of other people's generosity. That's not what he's saying. He's not anti-banking. He's not anti-savings. He's not anti-investments. Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't have a job, that you shouldn't take care of your family. Jesus is, he is in league. He, he, he is agreeing with all the other teachings within Scripture. 
This is not contrary to any of them. But what he's saying is, money and things have a power in your life. They have a strong power in your life. And they can become a God. They can become something that becomes so important, so cherished, so treasured by us that we use a lot of our time and a lot of our talent and a lot of our treasure and a lot of our energy to acquire and protect those things. I used to work at a detailing shop called Steve's Detailing. Unfortunately, I didn't own it. It was another guy. But I worked there in high school and early college. And we, again, we were in the Denver Tech Center of, of, uh, of um, kind of Littleton Centennial area. And we would wash, hand wash, and wax, and detail some amazing cars. And I'd get to drive them a little bit. Um, and so we would occasionally have a Bentley. We had one guy who had a uh, Rolls-Royce. We had several customers who had BMWs, several Porsche owners, and it was always fun to clean those cars, to wax those cars, to sit in those cars. But you know what's true about a Bentley and a Rolls-Royce and a Porsche and a BMW? They get scratches, just like a minivan. And when it gets scratched, you really get upset compared to the minivan. You freak out. You're willing to pay hundreds of dollars to have it corrected so that it looks perfect. For a while, I adopted these strategies in trying to take care of my cars. And my brother helped waken me out of my stupor. It just happened a couple years ago where he said, these are not museum pieces we're driving. <laughs> it's like, you're right. It's a daily driver. It's going to get scratched. Things are going to happen. I still like my car to look nice. I still like to take time doing it because I learned a craft, but it can become something that, that takes my energies, my talent, my time away from things that truly matter. Jesus is asking us, who do you treasure? Or what do you treasure? Do you treasure God or do you treasure mammon? Verse 24. This is kind of like Jesus, uh, this is his treasure test for us. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's Jesus' treasure test. Do you have the right treasure? Or are you seeking the wrong thing? In essence, Jesus is saying that if you truly treasure God, you'll trust Him. If you truly treasure God, you'll trust Him with your provision, with what you want. And even with what you need. Notice that when he talks about treasure in the, next situ- in the next few verses, he talks about eating and drinking and clothing. 
And treasures on earth can even be those things we need. Open up any magazine, and you will see article after article and advertisement after advertisement about eating and drinking and clothing. Things we need. Watch TV for a little while, and you'll see advertisements for things to eat, for things to drink, and for things to wear. And even those things can be something that we cherish and treasure to an exorbitant amount, even the things that we need. Jesus is saying, be careful. Uh, It's much more stern than that, isn't it? It's not a be careful. It's a you can't serve both God and money. You can't serve both God and money, but you can serve God with your money. Oh man, it's one of those kind of talks. Hearts sank. Folks got up and left. You know, whenever the church starts talking about money, whenever preachers start talking about money, people kind of grab hold of their purses and their wallets a little nearer and dearer, and they think, ah, this has got to be some ploy so he can get a raise because he doesn't have that BMW or that Porsche yet. That's not what it's about. I had a conversation with Sam. I'm going to brag for a moment. Because he called me this past week and his whole question was, Dad, I want to tithe to the church I'm attending. What should I do? I'm like, golly, kid, you're just clueless. You've lived with us how long? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, he, he just got a job. He's, he's working for the cemetery district uh, for the city of Fort Collins. And he wants to give. I said, well, Sam... It's really between you and God what you want to give. The New Testament says that God loves a cheerful giver. It also says that each of you should uh, put aside at the beginning of the week what you feel God wants you to give. There's not really a percentage that the New Testament really says for us. Tithe, the name, the word means tenth. I said, I think 10% is a good starting place, Sam. A good starting place. Did you hear what I said there? I think 10% is a good starting place. Of course, Sam, that's between you and God. So if you make 100 bucks in a week, give 10 bucks to God. This is what I was encouraging him to do. And I said, really the issue, Sam, is about your heart. Because you're making a lot of money for a single young male who's in school. You're making an awful lot of money. And you could spend that on anything and everything you want. But giving a percentage of your income away is the only way I know, is the only way I know to combat greed in our lives. It's the only way I know to to break the power of greed, the power of the God mammon in our life. It's the only way is to give a disciplined percentage of our money away. And I was so thrilled to have that conversation with my son. And I'm thrilled for his sake and for his future wife's sake and for his kid's sake that he wants to give 
now. Because this will be a habit he continues. This will be something that he just thinks a tenth at least goes to God. And I'm so thrilled that that is part of Sam. That's part of who he is. Parents, are you encouraging your kids? Are you teaching your children? Are you instructing them? Are you modeling to them? Giving. Generosity. Where, folks, is your treasure? Where is your heart? Jesus says this is the treasure test. What we do with our money. Well, ah, if I give a tenth away, oh my gosh, I mean, Sam's only making a hundred bucks and he lives with his grandparents. I mean, what's $10? Me, a tenth of my income? You gotta be nuts, pastor. Well, Jesus anticipates you. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Okay, so what do you think that includes? Just anyone. Don't worry about your life. Does that include money, health, minivans, children? Don't worry about your life. He could have ended it there, but he continues on because there's somebody out there thinking, well, I mean, yeah, but I mean, really, what do you mean by that? What you will eat or drink or about your body what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Boy, that is something that we could say to our culture regularly. Isn't life more than food and drink and clothes and the body? Isn't life more? My goodness, that has to be just proclaimed by somebody to this deaf materialistic culture that there's more to life. But church, do we believe that? Do we live it? Do we worry? I'm preaching this for my grandma Steiger. She passed away when Dave was born, just a few days after, a few a month after he was born. And she was a worrier. She's in heaven now. She hasn't worried in years. She probably got a good scolding when she first got there. It was in love, okay? I want you to make sure that you know it was in love. But I'm sure Jesus wrapped his arms around her and he says, Esther, why did you worry? Esther, why did you lack faith? You see, it's so much easier if he's embracing you. It's so much easier if you're standing on a golden street. So much easier at that point to go, Yeah, why did I worry? But when it's 7 o'clock, Monday morning, after this whole stupid time change thing, and you're getting ready, and you have to go to work, you don't feel Jesus hugging you and helping you out the door and saying, hey, why are you worrying? It's going to be okay. So buck up, buckaroo. Right? Look at the birds of the air. He gives us an example because you're going to walk, you're going to ride your bike, you're going to drive to work, and you're going to see a bird. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap. They don't have jobs. They're a bunch of freeloaders. 
They don't store away in barns. And yet, yet they eat. Why? Your heavenly Father feeds them. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? You know, I like to sometimes read and watch stuff about health. Some of you think that's funny, but that's okay. And uh, I have yet to hear a doctor or health fanatic say, all right, here's what you need to do. First thing you do when you wake up out of bed, you want to get up and you instantly want to start feeling anxiety. I want you to feel anxious. I want you to start. Some of you, some of you moms are really good at this. How do I know that? Because I'm married to one. Uh, start thinking about your day, what you need to get done. All those, that meeting, that very important meeting that you're worried about, that thing that he does that you need to talk to him about and you're irritated with it and you've brought it up a million times, but this is a million and one and he probably won't listen, but it makes you anxious. Think about that stuff. Think about all the things that the kids are doing that are driving you insane. Think about your employer and how much you just want to really like going to work. Think about and just get yourself worked up into a frenzy And I guarantee you health and prosperity will follow you all the days of your life. (laughs) Nobody's written that book. Nobody is trying to sell that to us. Nobody is trying to say, worry so you can live longer. They do say, drink green tea and you'll live longer. They do say, get some exercise and you'll live longer. Eat right and you'll live longer. But nobody ever says, Anxiety, worry will make you live longer. Why? Because they have Jesus' word on it that they won't work. It won't work. Yet we worry. We fret. We're anxious. And what Jesus is telling us is that anxiety, to be anxious is to be unproductive. Do you know who right now is listening very intently to my sermon. My wife. Because I'm a little bit like Grandma Steiger. I get anxious. I worry. I wonder. What am I doing? Am I doing it right? I've always been this way. I blame my Grandma Steiger. I worry. I fuss. I fret. I get anxious. I can get myself worked into a worry frenzy. I'm, believe me, I am not perfect in this area by any stretch of the imagination. And if anything, Jesus is regularly shaking his head and going, oh my gosh, kid. Love you, but. I love everybody. <laughs> no. <laughs> love you, but you got to trust me. You got to trust me. You see, when we worry, we're not demonstrating that we're trusting God. When we worry, we are not demonstrating trust in God. We are demonstrating trust in self. That's what Jesus says. Your heavenly Father feeds them. You're so much more valuable than them. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. 
If that, has, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, Steve. <laughs> so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Man, he got that one right, didn't he? Each day's got enough trouble of its own. And his solution, his solution to your worry, his solution to your anxiety, did you hear the solution? It's in there. He snuck it in. You see, when we worry, when we're anxious, we're not seeking what we should be seeking. We've got our eyes on the wrong treasure. Maybe our eyes are on us and we're treasuring us too much. Maybe our eyes are on our kids and we're treasuring our kids too much and we have all sorts of anxiety about them. Guess what? Kids grow up, move away, start doing things you don't want them to do and you have no control over it. We have anxiety over things we own or things we want. And Jesus says, you're seeking the wrong thing. If you have worry in your life, you are seeking the wrong thing. What was the answer? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Okay, so wait a minute. You're saying that if I do that right, then I get the Porsche and the Beamer and the... No. No. No, you get to be like Paul in the prison cell. You get to learn what it means to be content in all circumstances because you're seeking the right thing. You're able to write to the Philippians who took up an offering to buy Paul an overcoat. (laughs) I don't even know what the gift was, but that works. And he's able to say, thanks for the coat, but I really didn't need it because I've learned to be content. What a gift that would be to us. How radically different will we live our lives if we sought first God's kingdom and not our own, not mammon. I like to sometimes play from a big time, huge flyover perspective. Today in that song, uh, Grace Like Rain, uh, which kind of talks about the, I mean, it's the similar verses to Amazing Grace. He says 10,000 years from now. Think about this from a 10,000 year from now perspective, right? I brought my rope again. This rope is your life. I mean, this is your on earth life this little neon orange part. But this whole thing is your existence forever and ever into eternity. They didn't sell a rope long enough to symbolize total eternity. But Jesus is saying that many of us are focusing so much on this part here, the pagans run after this, that it's all about what we can get in this life here. 
I was reading a commentary, and this guy said that there was a guy who is, uh, they did a, a good old-fashioned Irish wake. And this man had a prized Corvette. And for his Irish wake, he wanted to be seated in his Corvette as his family and friends filed in. Don't ever put me into my Toyota Matrix. <laughs> I guess a suit would be fine, but Uh, that's having your eyes on this. That's thinking that all of life is about this. That's it. And Jesus says, don't store up treasure for this. He says, store up treasure for this. It's fascinating to me. It's mind-boggling to me. God and his reward system is crazy to me. He is not ashamed to reward us. He's not, he, I have said as a joke, I'm paid to be good, you're good for nothing, right? You've heard me say that. <laughs> Did you know that that's not true? That's a half-truth? Because if you're good, if you're righteous, if you follow Christ, if you put into practice the words of this sermon, do you know what? You're not being good for nothing. You're being good for rewards for eternity where moths and rust do not rot and thieves don't steal. I mean, my goodness, you can take what you are given in this world as a salary, as an income, and you can invest that for those last few golden years of your life. You can put away and you put away and work like a rat and pick up extra hours and extra, extra income and you can just work, 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 work so that you can retire at 65 and oh my gosh, and then you die at 67. Or you gotta have a hip replacement where your ticker doesn't quite work like it used to. And now you've got 10, 15, 20 years. But hey, you saved up. Thank God. Or you could take that same income, those same opportunities. And yeah, you should probably save up for this world. That's not a bad idea. But you can invest it. You can invest it in the kingdom of God. And guess what? When that hip needs replacing and the ticker wears out and you die, you show up there and you go, wow, that's quite the 401k I had. Holy cow, didn't realize that. You were serious about those rewards thing. This is amazing. And nothing can take it from me? And it, my Porsche will never be scratched here? And if it is, I have like a superpower that repainted? I don't know. You can leverage those things in this life for the next. 10,000 years from now. You know we have an example in our world, and with this we'll close. 4,600 years ago, the great pyramids of Egypt were built. The great pyramid was built for Pharaoh Khufu. And Pharaoh Khufu built this pyramid that was built to a height of 481 feet. 481 feet feet for 3,800 years. This was the tallest man-made structure on earth. It was a tomb. 
in that there are three chambers. There's the grand gallery, the queen's chamber, and the king's chamber. The original passageway into the great pyramid, into the chambers, is now blocked by huge granite stones. And so if you go to visit the Great Pyramid, you have to enter by a tunnel that's called the Robber's Tunnel. And when you enter through the Robber's Tunnel, which was, they believe, uh, created in about 860 uh, AD, you go into this tunnel and then it takes a quick turn to the left and enters into this pathway of descent that leads into the chambers. And if you were to go into those chambers, you would see, all you'd see in the king's chamber is the sarcophagus. But you know what they put in that amazing pyramid? I do. Because I was a kid on a field trip, rejoicing that we got out of school for the day to go see the Museum of Nature and Science in Denver. And there they had Egyptian artifacts. We got to see these amazing things made of gold and silver and bronze. And every single pyramid tomb was robbed. None of it made it to the afterlife. They were all robbed. 4,600 years ago, did that Pharaoh die a fool? I'd say yes. Question is, will you, will I die a fool? Or will we seek first the kingdom of God? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are unabashed in your giving out rewards to us. Jesus knows how hard life is here. He had to trust you as he was born into a manger. He had to trust you as he grew up as a teenager. He had to trust you as a young carpenter. He had to trust you as an itinerant preacher. Barely a place to lay his head, hardly any food to eat. He had to trust you as he faced Mount Calvary. He had to trust you. He's not asking us to do anything he didn't do himself. He understood that he could leverage this life, this one and only life we have, for eternal purposes. And thank God he did, for without his life, his death, his resurrection, we would have no hope. We would have no salvation. Lord, help us to seek first your kingdom. Holy Spirit, make it so. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Amen.